your Bibles to First uh, Timothy chapter two. We're moving along very quickly, or slowly, I should say. And uh, we are now uh, in this portion of Scripture. How the church ought to conduct itself. The conduct of a church is what Paul is uh, sharing with Timothy. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we started looking at the church back in uh, in First Thessalonians, uh, a model church, and then a church worthy of honor. Uh, we looked at Second Thessalonians. And, uh, you, you know, it was a model church, yet it still had its problems, its ups and downs, and, and Paul addressed them. And, is, and we're, talking to, uh, we're talking about Timothy. One of the things that we find is the very first thing that Paul talks about is uh, staying there, telling Timothy to stay there and take care of the things that are going on, to teach and to help people not to, uh, not to be teaching certain things, a different doctrine. Timothy was a young pastor. He was a protege of Paul, and he was willing to do all that God wanted him to do. Even though he was scared and shaking in his boots, he knew that he had not the ability to do the task that Paul had called him to do, the task that God had called him to do, yet he humbled himself and he says, Paul, what must I do? And Paul sent this letter. First of all, you got to stop people, stop people from teaching different doctrines. Now, in, in our culture today, it's very difficult to do because it, becomes, it comes across very accusatory, it comes across very negative, it comes across very just slamming people and people don't like that people don't like to be offended people don't like to be told that they're wrong we just i don't like it people don't like it however if it's the word of god then you know you have no problem uh, you should have no problem in at least expressing that fact but once again we're in a culture now where every everything and everyone is offended by just the very simple things and uh, uh you know I, I can say that the that, you know it, it's white outside and you know because it's light and you would, and you some people would say why does it have to be white you know, well, it's dark outside. Why does it have to be dark? I recommend just be night. And so, you know, you can you can even post on Facebook. I like mangoes. You know, I love mangoes. I love the way they taste. Well, what's wrong with oranges? What's wrong with lemons? And uh, you can offend people right away. And this has happened, by the way, these uh, these truths. And so in a culture where people are offended very easily, it is very difficult for me to ask you to defend the doctrine that you learn. However, you are commanded to do so. You're asked to do so. Now, I'm not asking you to be an apologetic. Uh, apologetic is apologetics is not apologizing. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But apolo- apologetics is the defending of a truth. And uh, so there are a lot of the, a lot of you that have no problem in doing that. You have the gift of discernment. You have the gift of uh, leadership. You have the gift of being able to teach. And so you have no problem in doing that. And yet many of you uh, may have the the difficulty of standing up in front of people or telling people that this is what the Bible teaches. Nonetheless, we're commanded to do so, and you can do so in a very subtle way, in a very profound way, especially when somebody asks you a question, and you can just tell the truth. Well, the, the Bible says, you know, that's what the Bible says, but don't you, well, I, you know, I don't know. You know, I mean, you have your idea of what that means, but I can tell you what the Bible says. Or, and, and a lot of times, it's just a matter of not complying or not following the rest of the crowd. It is a very good way of being an apolog- apologist. And uh, being able to defend your truth. And the, and the way that you can do that, the way you can do that with confidence is to be able to state it in such a way, or excuse me, is to be able to know it in such a way that you know that you know inside of your heart that this is the truth. I just know this. And this is why it's important, as Paul tells Timothy, to latch on to these doctrines and, uh, and how to pray for people. We talked about that last week in chapter 2. And uh, in chapter two, he says, I, you know, first of all, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places and positions, 
and those that are in high places and positions are those that are going to be taking office here pretty soon. There's an election coming up. Many of you know. You see the billboards. You see the posters. You've gotten flyers in the mail. Uh, sometimes that's the only thing that you get in the mail is a bunch of flyers and all these people that they want you to vote for. That is a perfect opportunity to lay these cards out and pray for each one of those. You know, just, okay, and don't necessarily have to vote for them. You don't have to like their politics. You don't even have to know them, but you can pray for them, pray for their salvation. And the, all the good that people are trying to do is great and fantastic. However, our responsibility, as Paul tells Timothy, is to pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Supplicate. Remember, we, we went through that quite a bit this last week and really just dove into that. And I'd like for you to listen to that message if you weren't here. But as he goes on, he says here in verse 8, uh, he says in verse 8, he says, first of all, I'm going to read verse 8 through uh, the rest of the chapter. Verse 15, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to start just expounding on these verses one by one. He says in verse 8, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good deeds. Let a woman learn quietly with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and the holiness with self-control. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of scripture that just seems to cause people's skin to crawl when we start talking about the roles of men and women. And I know that this is a hot debated topic, especially now in the church, but even more so in our culture. And so, Father, I pray that you lead us in, in being able to handle this truth and being able to expound on it and see what Paul is uh, getting across. And, Lord, we know that Paul's intention was never to have women to shut up. That is not his intention at all. We know that. However, there are roles and, and pl- places where each person has their place to, to minister. And so, Father, I pray that you help us uh, to be able to know this truth and to apply it in our own life. So, Father, keep us uh, as accurate as you can, to, as we can, to the Word of God, to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And um, you probably, if you haven't yet already noticed, that this is a very topic, a hard, harsh topic. We're not going to deal with all of it right now. We're only going to deal with the first part, which is the men. And then next week, we'll deal with the rest of it, maybe in the next couple of weeks. It's going to take some time to unpack, only because of what I said earlier. And I'm having a difficult time, I want you to know. Not necessarily proclaiming the truths. It's just being able to proclaim the truth so that you can understand and hear it and see it for yourselves. Our intention as a church, as you know, is never, ever, ever to denigrate women. That is not what Jesus Christ did. He elevated women. As a matter of fact, every time you find a woman in the Bible, the Bible always lifts them up from the very beginning. Yes, Eve did sin. Yes, but she's elevated as the mother of all living things. Sarah was another person. All through the Bible, every woman that is spoken about, they are elevated to a point of honor and dignity. And God used them. Mary, uh, the Mary Magdalene, every person, every woman in Scripture. And so the Bible is not one about uh, making women subject to men in such a way where they are slaves. That has never been the intention. How people get that out of the Bible? Well, they don't read the Bible. They just take the parts that they don't like and they expound on them in their own sense by culture. And so 
many people in the church are now starting to see this as well because the culture now is influencing the church where it has always been that the church needs to influence the culture. And so this has been going on for many years, and so it's a topic that is hotly debated, and now even within the church, and so we are going to touch on that as carefully as possible to explain, first and foremost, that women, you are loved. Amen? You are loved by God, and you are loved by this church, and we want nothing more than anything else to see you saved and, and your salvation of your family, and for all those that are part of uh, our ministry. And also, we want you to know that we don't want you to be in error as far as what the scriptures say. So we're going to take some time to go through this. Number one, first of all, he says, I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Number one, there is a place of prayer. Okay, there's the place of prayer. The, the I desire, of course, is the not this desire where, you know, I kind of wish that this happens. It's not like, you know, my desire is uh, not this, the, the word that, that was used in verse 4 where Paul is saying, you know, that it, it's God's desire. His, his desire is, of course, that everyone be saved. That, that was his desire. I, I desire for all people to be saved. That's my, that's my desire. That's my heart's desire, he says. And it's not that kind of a desire that we're talking about here. This is more of a command. As a matter of fact, it's a different word, but we use the same word in English. The, the, word, the, word, in, uh, the word in Greek is for desire, phileo, is the word that I, I wish. You know, God, phileo is everyone to be saved. That's his, that's his desire. But here, the word that Paul is using is bulomai. And bulomai is the word where it's more of a command. I command. I want. I ask. I, I'm telling you right now, men, pray. And he's telling, them, he's telling us to pray. But, but he says something very specific and, and somewhat of a, uh, something that we need to look at. And the, the word that he uses here, in every place. In every place. Now, just to kind of share with you on how Bible studies should be done. And, and the Bible always interprets itself. And when you see something like this, and most people would just kind of go right over it. Well, it says in every place. So do it all wherever we go. Well, this, this very phrase, this small phrase, in every place, uh, in uh, Pantitopo, in Pantitopo, in every place is used four different times. Here in three other places. I'm going to show you here in just a little bit. And every time that it is used, it is used in the context of the gathering of the saints. It is used in the gathering of the church. And so when he says, uh, when he says in Pantitopo, he is saying in every place where every one gathers to pray and when the church is being led and the church is being taught the doctrines of what Paul has taught them in every place in uh, Pantitopo as he say this is how I want you guys to do this in prayer for the men to do one else now we had just come back from how to pray, who to pray for, when you're praying for the kings and for the, those in authority. We want to pray for their salvation. Men, you got to pray for the salvation of everyone that's around you. Men, you got to pray for the people that are uh, in authority, just in the church. Men, you have to pray the prayer. You have to pray for those that are lost, those in your family, men within the church. And so just, just, we're gonna, just hold on there for a little bit because we're going to expound on this a little bit more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. For instance, he says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who in every place, and Pontitopo, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So when you see that first verse in, in Pontitopo, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 8, when Paul says, I desire that in every place, he is saying, when we get together in every church, that is not only there in Ephesus, but you're going to send this letter over to uh, all the other places, to Galatia, Corinth. All the, this letter is going to be read. 
in every place, men. I want you to do this. Again, in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who is the Christ, always, who always leads us in triumphal processions, and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him in Pontitopo everywhere, is how the English translation of the English Standard Translation has translated it. And again, the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth in every place to all the churches so that we need not say anything. Your faith is being expounded. Your faith is being proclaimed in all these places. In all four places, it refers to the official assembly of the church of what he is saying is that when the church comes together in its duly recognized official assembly, he says, I demand, I desire, I charge you, Timothy, that men do the praying. Now, does that mean that women can't pray in church? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that at all. Right now, the women are praying for the children, uh, those that are taking care of the children. The women pray for each other in the Bible study, and women do pray. And uh, I personally, I believe, and we're going to touch on this next week, personally, I believe that women probably can pray a whole lot more effective and more meaningful, more compassionate because of the compassion that most women have for their children, for their husbands, and for the community. And their prayers are sometimes even more eloquent because of their verbiage and the words that they use and how they're able just to proclaim to God the love that they have, not only for God, but for those around them. And I, I must confess that sometimes the women uh, actually pray a lot better than most men. But here, Paul is saying, I want men, and not every man, as a matter of fact. Not every man is supposed to get up and pray. There's a select few. This is the congregation. This is the assembly of the saints. This is within the church. There's certain men that get up and pray. Don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but uh, I've been inviting uh, some of the men to come up and pray. You, you probably haven't noticed, but his name is uh, James Silva. I wasn't going to mention his name. And uh, I've, I've, you know, I've been discipling him and, of course, Sal as well. And both of these men are getting up, and they're praying at the beginning of the service. And uh, James, February, because he is the man of love. Uh, you know, he's <laughs> my beloved uh, for, for the month of February. And Sal on March, because he's, um, because, because March Madness. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Basketball, because he loves basketball. How's that? Uh, but he's got March. And, and as, as you, I disciple more men, and they start to learn how to dive into God's word, I'm going to ask them to come up and pray. I'm not just going to give anybody a position to do this. Each one of us, each man, should be praying in the church. Learn how to pray in, in public and pray this community prayer. Pray this congregational prayer for everyone. And uh, it's not easy. I understand this. You know, Ken does so, as, uh, as a matter of fact, to open up our service, he, uh, to open up and for pray over the offering. And so every, every man that has been discipled and is going through the discipleship program, they will be taught. And, and some of you are already frequent prayers. I mean, you know how to pray already. And again, not all men are called to do this. It's very specifically, this is what we do. Number two, people of prayer. The men should pray is what Paul says. Once again, not that men are, are superior, not that men know everything. As a matter of fact, uh, I can confess to you, most women know more than their husbands do. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to go there at this point. I don't get any in trouble. But uh, men, and the Greek word here is aner. Aner is the word as for man as it is for woman, gunai. Gunai for women is, is a, a, not just a girl. Now, there's another word that Paul uses from time to time to mean men in general, anthropos. He means all the men. Or all people, not only men, but women as well, children, anthropos, all mankind in a sense. It's kind of like the word of Adam. Adam, Adam, is the word for mankind. And, but that was his name as well. And so, but Paul is very specific. And he says, yeah, I want you guys to do this. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, you remember the picking of the seven. 
Paul, uh, the, the apostles, they said, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven aner, men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who will be, will, we'll appoint to this duty. What they were appointing were deacons. The church was in constant conflict. There were the widows from the Greeks and the widows from the Jews, and it seemed like there was a favoritism that the Jewish widows were getting more of the attention, more of the supply, more of the finances than the Hellenistic women. And they were kind of like, hey, this isn't fair. I thought we were all one. Well, we are. How come they seem to be getting more? Well, because we like them more. I don't know. And the apostle said, this is not right. So appoint seven men full of wisdom, okay, of good repute. You know that these guys aren't going to do favoritism. Full of the spirit. And they will, by the spirit, being able to dole out that which is needed. And once again, this is the the, the verbiage that the Bible uses uh, in Acts chapter 6 and, and for Corinthians 11, 4, and 5. So, so, as I said a little while ago, just men are to pray. What about 1 Corinthians 11? 1 Corinthians 11 in your outline says this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as her head were shaven. Here, Paul... The, the Paul is saying to the people in Corinth, yes, men should pray and they should uncover their head. And women, when they pray or prophesy, well, there you go. See, a woman can pray and she can prophesy. Our problem today is that the word prophecy or prophesy has taken off its own definition. And it's not even close to being biblical for most places. Most, most people that know that the word prophesy basically is speaking the word of God. And uh, when you speak the word of God, back then the prophets were given a divine revelation from God to speak to the people. Okay, and so some people still want to take that authority and say, God spoke to me and said this, and this is God's word, and this is God's authoritative word because he spoke it to me, and I got to tell you what it is that he said. First of all, if that is true, then what we should do is take that person's words, write them down so that if it's from God, and then maybe we should add it to the end of the chapter. Start a whole new chapter. Call it, you know, whatever his name is, the chapter of God speaking to people. Oh, wait a minute. That contradicts scripture because the Bible says, do not be adding no more words to this. We take that to be very serious. No, don't be taking any words from this as well. We take that to be very serious as well because God's word has been complete. In our church, uh, and as well as many other churches like ours, we believe in what's called a closed canon. Okay, canon, not meaning the, the bazooka, canon meaning the rule, the standard. We believe that everything God wants us to know is between these two pages right here, between this leather bound book. And this is what we call a closed canon. A closed canon has God has revealed to us and God has re- continues to reveal. He has revealed what we need to know. And so therefore, today, if there's a prophet and the prophet is going to be speaking, he's going to be speaking God's word. Amen. There it is. He's going to be speaking God's word because God's word has already been revealed and we don't have any new revelation as some contend. The revelation that has been given to us is right here. And when you're reading God's word and you're seeing God's word and all of a sudden something pops up and you go, wow, God just revealed something to me. No, that revelation has always been there. I've got a new revelation. No, that revelation has always been there. What God did is what us theologians call illumination. In other words, he brought it to light. It has always been there. And you might have read it over and over and over again. And one of the things that's been happening, at least here, and I keep hearing this, is that when we read through the scripture and we go through it and we expound it, many people have come up and say, you know, Pastor, I've never seen that. It's like God just revealed something to me. I said, no, he illumined that to you. 
That revelation has always been there. But somehow, somewhere, the Holy Spirit waited until a specific time to illumine that to you. That's illumination. So don't get those two mixed up. Revelation's done. It's completed. Now, people that do not agree with me, they call me a dead letter person. In other words, I go by the dead letter. That letter is dead. We need something new. We need something fresh. Brother, have you even gone through the whole revelation of God yet? Have you even expounded every single word, parsed, and with, during the homilegs as you teach it? Have you even gone through all the Greek and the nuances of what it means? Have, do, do you, have you even ex, expounded it and, and just exhausted it? Well, no, not yet. How can you come up with something new then? Read what it says first and foremost. Nobody has, to be honest with you. Nobody can. Because the deeper you dig, the more you dive, the further you go. And you're like, I got to come up for some air. <gasps> it's like diving into this. Some theologian once said it's like diving into this huge bottomless ocean where you go down and you can never, ever reach the bottom. But it's shallow enough for a child to come up and drink from its edges. That's the word of God. And so when we talk about prophesying, it is talking the word of God, but not something that somebody hears. You know, you might hear some, you might hear somebody say to you, you know, well, God told me, and he'll come up to you and start talking to you about stuff that God said. You can talk, you can always, honestly, if you're doing this, you can honestly respond by saying, well, you know, I talked to God this morning and he had nothing to say to me about that, but I'll take it for what it says. Because if it agrees with God's word, you need a new revelation. But if it disagrees with God's word, you don't want another revelation. Amen. And so here we want to show you that, yes, a man can prophesy, a woman can prophesy, she can pray, and she can do so. However, in the context of uh, the, the authority of the church, and we're going to get into that next week. We don't want to prohibit women from praying. That's not our intention. We don't want to prohibit women from reading God's word and prophesying and talking to people about what the word says. But there has to be, and Paul's going to share with us, there has to be a, uh, there has to be a balance. There has to be a, a certain order of the, the way things done. Men have their roles. Women have their roles. And uh, again, like I said, we'll talk about that next week. Because as we said a little while ago, when you go to uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the last verse in your outline there, the front page, there is neither nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, people take this verse and say, you see there, we're all equal. And so if a man can preach, a woman can preach. Well, you know... <laughs> Because, because there's a Jew, does that mean the Greek can be a Jew as well? Or if there's a Jew, that means that vice versa? Or how about slaves? You know, it says you're slaves or, or masters, not slaves. So if you're a slave, that means you're not a slave anymore? What, what Paul is trying to get across here is that all of us, spiritually, on this level, we all have our various roles, all of us on God's spiritual level, and uh, women are elevated in Scripture, as I said before. The posture of prayer we stand how we should pray the bible says paul says lifting holy hands what is lifting what are holy hands are these holy hands, how do, you lift holy hands? Do, you, do you do this like wash the windows wash the windows or do you do this you know carry the tv carry the tv you know those types of uh, what are holy hands you, you know and it and this again paul is using uh He's, he's using a, a figure of speech in such a way that he's trying to get a message across. Just like when he says, walk in the spirit. It's a pattern of what you do on a daily life. It's, it's, the, it's the direction of where your soul, your spirit is going. It's the direction of your life being pointed either toward God or toward 
this, this country or this government, either to his word or to this world, either to Christ or to this culture. It's where your heart is pointing. It's not necessarily how you walk. If you walk with a limp, if you walk straight up, if you walk bent over, it's not a matter of whether you skip or you jump. It's a matter of how your life and what your life is directed to. And the same thing, everything we do, we do with our hands, basically. We, everything we do, we eat, we read, we, uh, we greet. And so it's an activity of having hands or a life that our life and our activity in this world is pure and holy before God. We'll express, well, I'll express this here in just a little bit. Because there are various types of postures. Some people say, have taken this verse and say, this is how you have to pray. You got to lift up your hands. Because if you're not lifting up your hand, you're not praying. You're not praying if you're not doing this. You know, if you're not doing those things, then that's not actual prayer. Because the Bible says in 1 Kings 8.22, in your outlines, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. There it is. And he prayed. And his prayer was a very profound prayer. Uh, other places in, in Nehemiah 8.6, that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people, amen, lifting up their hands. In Psalm 63, it says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Uh, in Psalms 134, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Over and over again, there are people that are lifting up their hands. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about various types of prayer. And one type of prayer that is not mentioned is the one that we do the most, which is not, it's not biblical. It's not wrong. But the one that we do the most is how, how do we pray? What do we ask people to do? Bow your heads and close your eyes. Bow your heads and close your eyes. That's not in scripture. But we do that to people. And, and I've said it before, I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Not that it makes you any more spiritual, not that it, it causes you to, to do something biblical or, you know, but what it does, I have to tell my grandkids this. Bow your heads. Bow your, close your eyes. You know, they're like this with one eye open. You know, it, 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 it's more, it's more to get your attention focused on God, but it's not a biblical prayer. A biblical, I guess you would say, a posture. But there are some postures in Scripture that, that the Bible talks about. Lifting hands, as I just said, standing. Uh, when Abraham sent his servants to find a wife for his, uh, for his son, Isaac, and, and he told them, and, and the servant says, you know, standing there, he's praying, God, help me find this woman that my, my, my master sent me to, to uh, find. And judges sitting, all the people sat and fasted before the Lord, and they prayed in uh, Nehemiah. Excuse me, and judges. Uh, kneeling, uh, and that's, that's one prayer, that, that's one way of posture that people say you have to pray kneeling. That was just one way of doing it. Not necessarily the way, but one way. Look up to, toward heaven. Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, looking up into heaven. And that's another posture that we can, we can do, bowing down. Uh, after, after the people had sinned, Moses was given two commandments, and he bowed before the Lord and says, Lord, please have mercy upon these people. You know, I, I am, and, and the sense of bowing is more of, you know, I, I, I just am humbled. And it's not the position, but it's more like the song that we just sang. I bow my heart. I bow my life. I, I'm, I'm humbling myself before you. Pounding of the chest, as the tax collector did uh, when, in Jesus' parable that says, Lord, have mercy upon me. And he would just beat his chest. I am a sinner. Have mercy upon me. Where the Pharisee was standing there with his hands lifted up saying, oh, Father, I'm sure glad that I'm, I'm such a perfect guy. At least I'm not like that guy. You know, I'm not like that guy. I give a 10%. I do all these great things for you, Lord. And the, the tax collector in Jesus' parable says, I'm not even worthy. 
Daniel prayed facing the temple. And he prayed with his, on his knees facing the temple. And Jesus, probably the most effective prayer of all, Jesus, while on the cross, three times he prayed, Father, Father, my God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was well, his first prayer. And then his second prayer was his Father, forgive them. For they, they don't know what they're doing. My, my question is, do you think, you think God answered that prayer? Father, forgive them. Well, we know that at Pentecost, 50 days later, 3,000 people were saved because they beat their chest and they proclaimed, what must we do? Repent. And they did. And 3,000 were saved. 5,000 were saved a little bit later. Thousands were saved. Was that prayer answered? He, didn't, he wasn't on his knees. He didn't bow his head, close his eyes. And then, of course, the last prayer is, Father, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, the most effective prayer in, Bible, in the Bible, if you really want to do it, is being hung and nailed to a cross. God will hear that prayer, but that was only specifically for Jesus. People have tried. People have tried hanging themselves on a cross, nail themselves, and get God's attention. And that was only for Jesus Christ. So there, there, there is that posture of uh, standing and your hands lifted up. In Psalm 66, 18 to, uh, to 20, as uh, it says there, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So basically, having clean hands and this attitude of, and the things that you do is having this clean heart. It's not necessarily, as we prayed, give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart. Father, because everything that we do, everything that we say, Whatever comes out of your mouth, it's in your heart. You ever hear somebody just say some of the God-awfulest things right after they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but blankety-blankety-blank, you know? You know, I, I love you, man, but I hate your, you know, you know, and just, you know why? It's because they got a very deceitful, hateful heart. Anything that comes out of your mouth, it's a reflection of your heart. And that is having dirty hands. That is having uh, not holy hands, but unclean hands. Because it's the heart that shows who you are. It's what you say. And, and I've got to be careful because I know that my heart sometimes tends to, to wander into, in, into that, you know, the, the joke mode, I should say. And in the joke mode, sometimes I say things kind of mean and, and they just don't come across right. And people get offended. And, and yes, I said a little while, everybody gets offended for all kinds of things. You know, the best thing to do is just to shut up. Don't say anything. Just let, what, just let what is edifying and encouraging come out of your mouth. Encourage one another. The time is short. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, as I mentioned, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And the rest of it says this, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed my steadfast love from me. You know, a lot of times one of the reasons why most of our prayers aren't answered is because we have dirty hands. Our attitude, it just thinks, oh, we only pray when we need something. Or, you know, we don't pray supplicating for kings and for people as we've been instructed to do. We only pray for those that we like. We don't want to pray for people we don't like. We only pray for those things that we need or we want. And God, give me, give me, give me, give me. And when it comes true, it says, okay, thank you, Lord. And you believe that God gave it to you. Really? You know, Satan can cause things to happen as well to distract you, to take you away from the purposes of God. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You know how it is that God is listening? When you have not cherished or held on to iniquity in your heart. 
when God starts to answer. James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is saying, you've got to purify yourself. You're saved. You, you, you know, you've got the, this victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought you and he bought you with his redeeming blood. You are his forever. Why do I continue following into the same old pattern? Paul says, draw near to God. Draw near. You know, the bad thing about drawing near to God, as you draw near to God's word, it's just like this big old spotlight. You know, it's, it's a mirror. It's, it's, a, it's one of those very microscopic mirrors where it reflects everything. And then a big old light, psh, it just shines. Oh, my God, I'm ugly. Yes, you are. God, what am I going to do? Just rest. Just, just draw near. But the closer we get to God, it's like, oh, my God, I just, I can't. The glory of God is so powerful and reflective on my life that it causes me to, you know, I've heard this before. Also, people come to church and they come in trembling sometimes. People have said, I'm not going to go to church. Why not? It's because the building's going to fall on me. <laughs> you know, they're not joking. They really believe God's going to zap them as soon as they walk in. What are you doing here? You know, why, why are you here? You know, just that's, that's what they think. Why? Because they're entering the presence of God. And a lot of times people come here just shivering and shaking and wondering what's going to happen next. I've seen that. I've experienced that many times before. And it's because as they're drawing near, God's calling them. He's drawing them. God is drawing you and he's pulling you and he's saying, don't fight that. Don't resist it. Just submit to it. See, having clean hands, lifting holy hands is submitting to God and what he wants you to do. Just do it. Okay, Lord, I'm done. I'm done running my own program. My program, I, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired three times over. I'm done with this stuff. I don't want to listen to what the world says anymore. I want to follow you. And you know what? The moment you say that, oh, yeah, Satan says, all right, let's go. We got another job here. We know, we know how Sal works. We know what hurts him. We know what the things that will cause him to stumble. Come on, you guys know, uh, ramp it up. And it ramps up. And God says, I got you. I got you. In Isaiah, I, I didn't give you this outline, this, this verse in Isaiah chapter 1. It says in verses 15 and 17, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Not that their hands were actually full of blood, but, Paul, but uh, Isaiah, God is telling Isaiah, you, you know, the people here, I mean, they've sinned. They sinned. They, you know, might as well be murderers of what they're doing. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Uh, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cases. And they were just forgetting and just putting things aside and not even addressing. And Isaiah is talking to the people that are in captivity. They're going to go into captivity. And he says, you know, this is why your nation has fallen. This, this didn't take like one day. This is hundreds of years. And they were captive. And God is saying, you want to know why? Well, this is why. Because you come to me with these bloody hands, not even caring for those within the church or those around you that need your help. We read this, we sang this. Well, James read this verse earlier in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
The rest of it goes like this. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. When you raise up your hands and you stand before him, is your heart clean? Are you ready to be revealed to God to show you what is going on in your life? Ask him. Search me, O Lord. Search me and know my ways. Ask him. He'll show you. Don't run from it. Repent from it. That's what we do. We either run from it or we repent from it. Repent from it. The point here is not uh, when you pray that you have to have your hands in the air. The point here is that the one who prays must have these hands or this activity of their life. The symbol of activity. The things that we do that we're involved in in life with our hands to the point that whoever prays ought to be the kind of person who is living a holy life, pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, pursuing these things that only can come to you when you are regenerated and the spirit lives within you, gives you the fruit of the spirit, and you're able to walk this world in the spirit and not by the flesh because of what God is doing in your life. You cannot do this any other way. There's no willpower. Strong enough to cause that to happen. And lastly, the attitude, proper attitude of prayer, without anger or quarreling. You know, it's interesting. And, and I kind of was looking at this. Well, why would Paul even say that? Why would he say without arguing or quarreling? Well, as I said before, more than likely, there was arguing and quarreling going on in the church. And I don't think they were arguing and quarreling over who gets to pray. I don't think that's the context here. I believe that Paul is saying, you know, there's a lot of arguments going on. And some of you leaders, you really think that you got it all together, but you don't. Some of you guys that want to be leaders, you know, you really think you got it all together, but you don't. You argue, you quarrel, you slander, you talk. And, you know, and all the stuff that's going on within the church is damaging the church. And it might not damage the church on the outside because most people don't know what's going on. But guess what? God knows your heart. He does. And if, you, if you're going to lift up holy hands, and your hands are holy, do it without arguing and quarreling. And it's, it's amazing that when we talk about arguing and quarreling, well, first of all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And he says, before we do anything else, and, and as we're working through our salvation with fear and trembling, getting rid of all that stuff that we've been holding on to, and coming to God and recognizing, seeing the reflection of who we are and who he is, and not getting close enough, not being able to even begin to really be truly like Christ. But we're striving, we're going, and we're moving. Yes, don't, don't take this as a as a job or a, or a profession or anything else that you might think of, don't take this as, I'll never get there. No, you won't. But it doesn't mean you can't stop striving. This is what we strive for. That perfection is going to be completed the moment you enter into the presence of God. But until then, the reason why you're going to struggle is because, like I said earlier, you got the countermeasures coming up against you. And it's interesting that for, for most husbands and wives and those of you that are married, the, the place where it happens the most is in the home. That's where all this arguing and quarreling. We come to church, and then we want to lift up our holy hands and, and, and pray to God, God, help me, because, you know, woe is me, or whatever the case may be. You know, it's interesting. Peter would say this. When he's talking about the wives, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. You know, how do you know? How do you know that if not by your example, you're going to be able to lead them to salvation? And then he turns around, he says to the husbands, likewise, husband, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, that's going to be a tall order for some men. Understand. 
I can't understand my wife. I don't understand women. You know, what? That, that's, not, that's not my problem. God says do it in an understanding way. Understand your woman. Understand your wife. Understand her needs, what she needs. You've got to understand those things. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. We show honor to them. We show not because they are less, not because they are worthless. We show honor to them because that's a command. And again, what the Bible does, he honors the woman. He, he always honors, especially the wife. But he says here's something even more important that I want to get to. He says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. A lot of men's prayers just bounce off the ceiling because you're lifting up holy hands or trying to, and these hands aren't holy because there's anger and wrath going on. There's anger and dissension. There's all this anger and quarreling. The attitude isn't right. The attitude isn't right. And because our attitude isn't right and our anger and quarreling is going on, they're bouncing off the ceiling. And Paul Peter says, that's why it's happening. That's why it's happening because your prayers are being hindered. And number four, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but number four is the proper attitude of prayer. Number four is the proper attitude of prayer. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, some of you know chapter 8, verse 28, but we're going to go to verse 26 and 27 in your outlines. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us, groanings too deep for words. You see? I'm praying. I believe I've got myself to a point where, Father, I, I want my activity to reflect who you are. I want my hands to be able to reflect who you are. I want my heart to be pure before you so that the words that I say are words of encouragement, not discouragement, words of being able to minister, not to destroy. And, and Father, you, I, I, I desire, and, and those are the things that I want you to know. Father, hear my prayer. You know, I, I, hear, hear my prayer, Lord. I don't even know what to pray, God. And God says, it's okay. That's all right. Because you know what? The Holy Spirit's going to intercede for you. There's times that I've been on my face, and I don't even know what to say. Sometimes I just sob. I just cry. And the spirit within me, he intercedes for me and tells God, this is what he needs. This is what he wants. Here's what he's trying to get across to you, Lord. But the pain, the anguish, the uh, whatever is going on in his life, he just, he just can't verbally say it. You, you know, when, you, when Jesus taught the model prayer, he says, when you pray, go into your closet. And pray. For your father already knows what you need. He already knows what you want. He so the question is, so why pray? Well, first of all, because you're commanded to pray. <laughs> pray. Just do it. And number two, because you need to hear what it is that you're saying. You know, it's kind of like the, the, yes, you have all these thoughts going on in your head and things are going on and you're trying, you blurt it out. And sometimes once you say it, it kind of like, really? Is that, what, is that what I'm trying to say, Lord? Yeah, yeah, let me try that again. And, and sometimes you're having this communication, this, this, uh, this uh, talking to God, in a sense, and he's kind of helping you formulate in your heart to change your heart. You're not, he's not trying to change your circumstances. Your circumstances are done. These things, that God's providence, all these things that are going on around your, your life, around your world, in the universe, God is doing something that's way beyond you. It's, it's way beyond you. It's way beyond me. It's way beyond any of us. God's already, in his providence, has determined how the end is going to be. We know that because it says so right here, right? We know how the end's going to end. 
And from the beginning, he's been working his providence. Now, this is amazing to me. I know a lot of people want miracles. You know, they think that's the greatest thing. A miracle, God just goes like that and it's done. Right? That happened to me. It happens to that person, whoever it is. Boom, you're healed. Just like that. Whoa, that's a miracle. You know, and they do happen. But I think and I believe what's more amazing than a miracle is God's providence. How he works everything together from way back when, right now, all around me to accomplish something in the future. And what God is doing in my prayer is getting me ready to fulfill that, whatever, that providence that he's doing, all those things that he's orchestrating. To me, that is more amazing than a miracle. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love to see, you know, the sun stand still. I'd love to see it all go dark. You know, I'd like for us to, you know, just all defy gravity. You know, stuff like that. Finding a parking spot in a crowded shopping center is not a miracle, okay? And not to belittle the, the birth, birth is, is not a miracle. I mean, it, it is in a sense to where it happens, but it happens. A miracle is something that supernaturally happens that you cannot even explain. Birth, you can explain that. It's how the body works. A lot of the things that take place in our world aren't necessarily miracles. They, re they really aren't. A miracle is having somebody raised from the dead. A miracle would be for my daughter, Militia, to walk in. Oh, there she is. I'm sorry. I thought she was out here. If it would be for her to get up and start singing and praising God out of the blues and having a communication with you, the, the, what she does, that would be a miracle. Could God do that? Yeah. A miracle would be uh, raising somebody up from that, that has been, uh, you know, paralyzed or, or cured. That, that You know that they're dying of cancer. All of a sudden, they're pure. You've seen some of those. See, a miracle is something supernatural. And they don't happen all the time. Because if they happened all the time, they would be called all the timers. I guess. Not a miracle. But God's providence, beloved, I want you to know something. That, to me, is more amazing. And how God orchestrated your life to be here at this point tomorrow and the rest just to accomplish his purpose through you. So I just want, I just want to close out with this. <clears throat> so, likewise... The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Not according to the will of man, not according to the will of Sal, or anyone else, but it's according to God's will. And he will intercede. And in his providence, he's causing you to pray for the people around you, so that you can see it come to fruition and you'll see it all take place as he had already predestined. Now that is amazing to me. And you get to be a part of that as you understand the roles and the attitude of prayer. Let me ask you to stand. And as I mentioned, the rest of this portion of scripture is very important to the, the life of the church. And, and I pray that you, uh, you, can, you, you will be here and, and help someone to understand this as well. Because again, Paul's purpose is not to say women, aren't, women are of no value. That is not his intention. But his intention is to show there's got to be a proper attitude to prayer. And that'll be part two next week. Father, thank you once again. Lord, you, you've showed us in just this little portion of scripture, this one verse, the attitude of prayer, what we ought to do, and how we ought to pray, where we ought to pray, who should be praying. 
And Lord, I know that if somebody were to take this outline right here without any other information, they would believe that we only want people to pray in church, that we only want men to pray, and we only want men to stand in a certain way. But Father, help us to just expound this a little bit more in our own life and to apply it so that we can be ready to fight the good fight. From the beginning, the enemy has been warring against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the saints, and those of, of long ago. And he'll continue to do so until the end. So, Lord, I pray that you help us to stay firm to this fight. As Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight. And that's what we want to do, Lord. So, Father, thank you once again for this promise and for how you deal with us in every situation. Dismiss us now from this place, but never from your presence, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says amen and amen. Yeah, uh, next Sunday, just so you know, we have our Lord's Supper in March. Uh, and it's generally done uh, the first Sunday of the month. Okay? Now, what we're going to do, uh, because Seder's coming up. You guys saw the flyers, right? You guys know Seder's coming up next month. And we're going to start asking for people to, to volunteer for, um, uh, to bring things. And what we generally do is we don't have the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month because we have the Lord's Supper during Seder. However, this month we're going to have the Lord's Supper next Sunday in the event that you may not be here for Seder. Now, just a little ex explanation for those of you who have not exp experienced Seder. Seder is basically the Passover meal. And we have it all in the fellowship hall. We experience the whole supper like Jesus did with his disciples. We go through the lamb, the bitter herbs, and how, how it was put in place. And from that, where Jesus Christ takes the bread, and he breaks it and gives it to his disciples. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And how he takes the cup. And which cup? Of wine. Of, uh, and it's the cup of redemption. And he takes that cup, and he passes it around to his disciples and says, as often as you drink and eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So... It is a very important, it's not that we want to be Jewish, but we are going to experience a Jewish Passover, and we have a meal right in the middle of our church service. So everything's going to be next door. Okay, it's going to be at the fellowship hall. Yes, uh, not next door, like off the property, at the fellowship hall. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we're going to meet there, and we start at 10, because it's a two-hour service at least. But we start at 10, and uh, we're going to have lunch right in the middle of it. And we're going to be able to see what Jesus and his disciples experienced. The washing of the feet. We're not going to wash people's feet. Uh, we're not going to do that. But we're going, to wash, we're going to wash hands. We're going to go through the bitter herbs. We're going to explain it to you in detail as the Jewish people had it understood, to, uh, taught to them. Amen? So, with that said, um, Lord's Supper will be next, next Sunday. We'll have that, the Lord's table. And then we're going to do it again during Seder. So, be ready for that. That's it. We are dismissed.